0: Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Ronit Malka, and today I'm joined by Dr. John Robachek to talk about lip reconstruction. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Robachek.
1: Thank you for allowing me to be with you.
0: As this is a more specialized podcast, we'll spend most of our time talking about reconstruction and only briefly touch on some of the pathophysiology and workup involved with lip defects. Uh, We do have a number of podcasts relating to both facial trauma, local and free flap reconstruction, as well as oral cavity and cutaneous malignancies that might be helpful to also listen to for some background. So starting off, uh, how do these patients typically present and what pathologies are they presenting with?
1: Uh, I think you break it down nicely. You have the patient who comes in for trauma, and it can be a soft tissue loss of the upper or lower lip. Uh, And that can be from dog bites, MVAs, or blunt or penetrating trauma. Uh, And the other section is basically malignancies. And you treat them, I think, distinctly different. For soft tissue from a trauma perspective, you really go on tissue conservation. And when you initially present, you really want to be cautious about resecting any soft tissue. Initially, you obviously want to clean, debride, irrigate treat for potential infection, depending on the etiology and the duration of the trauma, and then follow them. You really don't undertake a reconstructive endeavor for the upper or lower lip at the initial trauma presentation. There's obviously exceptions to that rule, but they are very limited. Uh, And that's really for someone who has absolute loss of oral competency. But you really want to proceed for the upper and lower lip, and trauma being as conservative as humanly possible. That said, you do need closed lacerations and for revulsive injuries that can be reconstituted, it's important that you do so. As we talk more about the lip and how we do that, we'll go over that, but that's basically my philosophy with trauma to the upper and lower lips, is preservation, preservation, clean, wash, debris, and watch and see what survives. That is not what is applied towards resection. Resection is typically done for malignancies and is done in a controlled manner with the process of getting margin clearance. Once those margins are obtained, then you can go about reconstruction. And normally that can be done in a prepared setting where you know that patient is getting a resection and you have time to plan it. So those are really the two presentations that I I mainly deal with.
0: And uh, what malignancies do you typically see on the upper and lower lip?
1: By and far, you know, squamous cell carcinoma and basal cell carcinoma. Mm -hmm. The lower lip is a big player for squamous cell carcinoma, given the UV exposure on the lower lip, but it's followed up by basal cell. Occasionally, you'll get some minor salivary within the uh, oral mucosa of the lip. It's essentially squamous cell and basal cell. You can look up case reports, especially for oral mucosal melanoma but knowing just the differential does include that and minor salivary etiologies. Other dermopathology pathology to consider would be a Merkel cell, but those are typically the big cancers, but you should be thinking squamous cell carcinoma. And as soon as you are thinking of that, obviously you wouldn't be thinking of biopsy, but this should be followed by a resection by a qualified Mohs surgeon. If you're gonna take slow mos or a wide local, I would just do that for really distinctly small lesions. Once you get to a larger lesion of the lip, the margin size does matter. Uh, and it can commit you to a reconstruction that's not going to be as ideal as if you could keep the margin smaller. So that is where the money is worth the pay to the motor surgeon.
0: And are there any benign things that you typically see in the upper lower lip that need to get resected, like vascular or
1: Oh, for sure. That's mainly in the pediatric population, but you can have venous lakes of the oral lip in terms of oral mucosa. And then obviously, you have large, large venous and lymphatic malformations that extend from the oral cavity to include the lip. And those those are much more challenging to treat. And generally, we see them in the pediatric population.
0: And let's just briefly review the anatomy relevant to lip reconstruction. Uh, What are the subunits and the major landmarks we're talking about here?
1: Yeah, so the upper is distinctly different from the lower in the sense that the upper has three subunits, which are separated by the filtral column. And from a reconstructive standpoint, this is a fundamental aspect of when we think about reconstructing the upper lip, that you do not want to violate the filtral column, if at all possible. And then when you do violate it, that you reconstitute it as a subunit. And that's distinctly different from the lower lip, which has two subunits. And you know, breaking it down by subunits is great but it's really important to have a firm grasp that the upper and lower lower lip both constitute a a functional as well as aesthetic the functional is obviously oral competency and to really grasp that you got to get the obicularis and so that needs to be in the conversation and then you also have the oral mucosa and then you have the skin vermilion so there's three layers that go into so three subunits up top two subunits below and the neurovascular bundles which come from lateral and break off to superior inferior labial arteries.
0: We often hear about, like a especially for nasal reconstruction, if you lose more than 50% of a subunit, you just take the whole thing. Does that hold for lips too?
1: Uh, I would contest that. That notion is really for nasal reconstruction. The one area I would apply that to is with the upper lip with regards to the filtral and the tubercle of the filtrum. If that is violated greater than 50%, you should probably resurface the whole thing, especially as we talk further in terms of the lip switch procedure. You'd want to resurface that in its entirety. Outside of that, taking more of the lip, you should try to
0: avoid that. And you've started to touch on it already, but what landmarks or anatomy do we need to keep in mind when we're operating on the lip?
1: Fundamentally, the vermilion junction is what we think about the most when we look at the lip as it separates the skin from the dry vermilion. And the reason for that is that a one or two millimeter difference in that junction is very visible and noticeable as an asymmetry to the human eye. And so patients that have that usually are gonna request for a revision surgery to correct that step off. So as we repair that, That takes precedence. However, it is not penultimate to the function of the lip. To really address the function has nothing to do with the vermilion border, but has everything to do with the obicularis. If you fail to get the obicularis in some type of continuity, you're going to have a loss of function. And he can be the best looking vermilion border in the world, but if you have a whistle deformity or you have a discontinuity of the orbicularis, it is all for naught.
0: Is there anything on history or physical exam that you're paying careful attention to with these patients?
1: Uh, I do, I'm obviously concerned if they have any type of vascular disease. I think smoking is huge. Um, Skin grafting the lip is difficult in the sense that typically you're skin grafting on top of muscle. And it's a very dynamic muscle uh, and so someone who's a smoker i'm just going to have a lower threshold with regards to doing a thick local flap on versus you know trying to get a skin craft to survive but vascular status also diabetes uh, is very anecdotal but generally speaking an uncontrolled diabetic i'll usually kick on a little bit more antibiotics in terms of just in closer follow-up but tobacco exposure vascular paths and diabetics, um, they're a higher risk profile.
0: And do you routinely get any imaging or labs on the patients prior to surgery?
1: Nope, unless there's a really uh, an issue with coagulopathy. But for most local flaps, you can usually deal with that in a clinic setting.
0: What about the role for photo documentation?
1: Of unparalleled importance, okay? Um, not just for a clinical uh, value, but also from a medical legal standpoint, that large lip reconstructions are tedious affairs, requiring often multiple revisions to get it absolutely as good as it humanly can be. As such, the patient needs to know where they started, and you need to know where they started. So taking pictures at the beginning, middle and end are fundamental to what we do.
0: So let's move on to treatment options. Um, we'll break this down into lower and upper lip. Uh, starting with the lower lip, how do you typically frame reconstruction?
1: Yeah, I would say a lower lip is just a much more forgiving entity than the upper lip. And so most lower lip defects that are under a half of full thickness can be repaired with a, um, either a wedge or a W-plasty uh, full thickness resection. And again the tenants you're trying to follow is function oral competency and then the aesthetic and so the lower lip you can pretty much get away with upwards of a third to almost a half with basically taking a wedge out now if it's not a full fitness defect there are various things you can do as if with regards to doing local skin flaps only and obviously you can do a v to y advancement for the oral mucosa to get a mucosal lining but it is important when you assess that you assess the obicularis meaning if the resection margin of the most surgeon included a good chunk of obicularis that needs to be reapproximated if you fail to do so you will have a basically uh, whistle deformity of the lip and you have lost oral competency. And so I would advocate avoiding the shortcut if you've taken a lot of the obicularis, but not as much skin, sometimes the best avenue is to wedge that. And that applies to the upper lip as well. But for the lower lip, it's much more forgiving for those third to 40%
0: defects. How about primary closure? When do you, When do you consider just repairing it. What size defect?
1: I would say, you know, for that uh, third and less, you can try that. I think it's really important that you're mindful of all three layers, Mm -hmm. meaning that if it's just the skin, realize it will bunch up if you just put a bunch of primary sutures in at that 30% mark. Now, if it's just a centimeter and you're, you're well lower than 30%, you can probably get away with that. Again, you can come back and take out a little bit of obicularis in the end if you bunch the obicularis up. It is much more challenging to give it back when it's not there to give. So primary closures I would say is for lower than a third.
0: And how about if it's more than a half?
1: So more than a half, then we we break down into larger flap considerations uh, for local flap. So between I would say that 40% to 75%, not total lip. I think most folks have their their preferences. And so just to outline the big choices that you have at that point is you can do a cross lip flap with an abbey flap. You can do, if it involves a commissure, you can do a switch lip flap with an S-lander. But realize there's downsides to the two switch lip flaps. And the downside is that neither of those are really sensate flaps. So when you think about large defects, you need to break them down to are you giving them a static soft tissue reconstruction or is are they dynamic? Are you actually giving them a sensate moving muscle? And both have its positives, but realize for the switching of the lip with the exception of very isolated case reports of people preserving the facial nerve as well as the mental nerve for lower lip reconstruction, you're going to pretty much sacrifice the sensation to your S-lander and your abbe flap. So just keep that in mind. That is more of a static reconstruction. That leads us to the other bigger flaps, which most people will consider at least discussing a, um, a Gillies fan flap, which again is also a uh, insensate because a, a Gillies fan flap is essentially an S-lander that has a larger back cut in it. And then the true and try favorite of everybody is the carapansic flap, and the reason we like the carapansic flap is you can deal with very large defects, you do maintain the neurovascular pedicle, and you maintain oral competency. So that's kind of how I think about it. If you're concerned about giving the giving the patient oral competency, and that's going to get sacrificed, or your switch lip is just not going to be big enough, then I would encourage most folks. Once you get to be about 60% reconstruction, you should probably be thinking about a carapanzic because the patient is going to need as much dynamic function as humanly possible.
0: Great, well, so starting off with the smaller defects, can you walk us through how you're designing and creating these flaps?
1: Uh, For the smaller defects, uh, for the lower lip, I I usually do a a W-plasty wedge, full thickness and, I repair it in three layers, and I usually will close the oral mucosa first, followed by muscle. At the end of the day, I try to maintain a really thick bundle of muscle, almost giving the patient a a tubercle of muscle, just because I know it's a dynamic closure and that muscle is going to settle down. So a W plasty, I like uh, it. Just kind of breaks up the scar. The other thing by doing the W plasty versus the straight V is it shortens the length. And if you can settle it in your mental crease, it just shows better for the patient for the lower lip. As far as the abbe and the Slander reconstructions for the switch lip, uh, those are essentially measured out to be half the length of the defect, and then it's a full thickness cut, maintaining the labial artery. As far as which side to go, you'd like it to be the most proximal to the commissure as your point of rotation. So what that means is that if you're going on the the right side of the lip, you'd normally pivot on the right just so it's closer to your pedicle. Uh, And again, those are full thickness cuts. You can make partial thickness cuts, but you really have to have that artery and the, not so much the artery, but you have to have the nerves pretty much dissected out. And the arc of rotation is gonna be fairly tight for the carapansic, it's basically a hockey stick incision on either side. It is not a full fitness incision. It goes through the skin. And then you basically, die, you basically dissect out your neurovascular pedicle to the obicularis. And then you basically close that, again, in three layers. Your oral mucosa, you'll have to advance it with the possible V to Y. If you're really short in oral mucosa, you can do a tongue flap. But those are the, the broad strokes of that type of reconstructive effort.
0: And Abbe and Eslender flaps, are they typically um, single-stage or double-stage?
1: Oh, it's a two-stage. You normally wait two to three weeks. And that takes a lot of buy-in from the patient. So you have to have a patient who's going to be compliant, who's going to tolerate the dietary deficits you get from doing that, and have bought into the long-term reconstructive efforts, which is not only do you have to inset the lip after you're done, but more often than not, especially for an S lander, you're buying them a plasti in six to eight weeks after that. So again, when they come in and you're thinking, hey, I can't wait to get the S lander going here, that's at least a, a, a three operation affair, uh for the patient and for you. And so just settle down, buck up the seat belts and enjoy the ride with the patient. But it's not, it's at least a two stage procedure.
0: And just as a side note, I think it can be really confusing to sometimes see Abbey and eslender flaps designated as separate entities, but other times they're described as one abe eslender flap, kind of hyphenated. What's the difference between them, and are they really distinct or not so much?
1: Yeah, again, the Esselander can be argued to be a single-stage procedure in the sense that's for the commissure. So you essentially can swing it down, and it's not violating the oral orifice, meaning it's not bridging through the middle. Again, as I mentioned before, you're going to have to go back and do a commissure plasty uh, because of the um, blunting of the commissure. Mm-hmm. So even though it is a one stage, and you don't have the um, the competency issues of having the bridge in the middle of the oral orifice, you're you've got to commit to doing the commissure plasty. The abbe, the bridge of tissue, is typically at the orifice, and so their ability to open their mouth is a struggle. Some folks will even put the patient in um, IMF for a little bit of time if they really feel that they're not going to be compliant. My argument against that would be if they can't comply to that, you might want to reconsider another avenue uh, for them not to open their mouth for that period of time. But that's how I'd break it down. And that's, that's how the, the boards like to talk about it. S-lander is for commissure reconstruction. The abbe is for non-commissure central lip. And the abbe is really good for fine tuning reconstructions, multiple stages down the line, meaning that let's say you do a carapanzic because the patient's missing, you know, two thirds of the lip. Well, then the treatment for that is you do the carapanzic, but they're going to have microstomia. So your treatment from that would be to do an ABE to free that up. And again, that works because you've done the carapanzic, which is giving you your functional dynamic reconstruction. But now you're bringing the ABE, which is non-functional, non-dynamic, and bringing in soft tissue bulk mm-hmm. and fixing the microstomia. So just realize that you know your ab and your s lander is really a tool for really specific lip defects at 40 to 60 percent, and I would really side more towards you know staying around a 50 percent defect to do that. And if you can fix it with a with a carapansic, do that, keeping those lip switches in the back pocket for fine tuning your result. So they're tools, but your real big gun is a carapansic.
0: And how about some of the larger flaps we might sometimes see or um, read about like Bernard burrow flap or a Fujimori gate flap, or how would you you decide when to use those?
1: I think for the Bernard or the Webster Bernard flap, I, again, that's a, uh, it's a full thickness cut and it's basically a cheek advancement flap. And so that's your kind of your go-to for, um, you know, near total defects, which again, when you do that and you advance from the cheek you're pretty much making full through cuts through your advancement flap which again is an insensate flap and so i would say those flaps you should at least be comfortable with drawing on a piece of paper but the carapansic giving you a sensate flap is a dynamic reconstruction but the bernard webster that I'm familiar with is essentially gonna be a full through cheek advancement that you cut out burrow triangles. And that's that's a reasonable, if you've got a commissure and commissure intact and you're just trying to replace that central element. Mm -hmm. But that's that's what we'd call a near total defect of the lower and upper lip.
0: So mainly kind of if you want a sensate functional versus insensate.
1: Correct, so again, You want sensation, you want dynamic, you want an intact orbicularis that has innervation to it, then you should do a carapansy. So if you have a total lower lip, the mental subunit, they need something. It's a static reconstruction. There's absolutely no innervation to it. And you're using something like a palmaris longest tendon to give you basically a dam effect. And so, but it's not a functional dam. And so the patients will struggle with that and setting tension over time that's going to become an issue with it right now there's not a great total lip reconstructive flap out there it gives you a lot of dynamic function and so as much as possible the carapanzic is an option that's why that's why we that's why we use it is that it allows us to establish some formal muscle competency but if there is no orbicularis at all then you have to commit to a static reconstruction which can look okay. It just doesn't work okay.
0: So lots of reconstructive options for the lower lip. What about the upper lip?
1: Yeah, the lower lip follows similar lines, but you're a little more concerned with what you're willing to do. And so uh, for primary closure, you know, a 1 to you know, 1.5 centimeter defect, you can probably get away with like an O to T. Uh, as you get bigger, you can do wedges. And again, the wedges, I would say, are upwards of 25% okay if you're talking full thickness now if it's not full thickness and you're just resurfacing the skin then you can do all kinds of uh, nifty things with island pedicle flaps Uh, you could even skin graft to resurface it but really the meat of reconstruction and the challenges is for full thickness tissue loss so where we see those pictures where they're missing you know half of the upper lip and in those cases. That's where the lower lip really comes into play. And that's where you would really change your protocol with the S-lander and the abbe flap. Okay. Because at that point, there's not a lot of tissue you can take from the cheek to redo the filtrum. Okay. The gillies flap, you can bring over mainly for lower lip. You can do it for the upper lip, but you're swinging a lot of tissue over. And so for the upper lip, we try to, at the 50% size, to think more along the lines of an S-lander or an abbe lip switch. Just because we're trying to get more tissue in, you're just gonna have to put a big flap in from the other lip. All near total reconstruction of the upper lip is extremely challenging. And that's where you can use a carapansic, But again, your carapanzic is gonna be limited without giving you complete nasal stenosis because you're gonna be bringing in so much tension. Cause that's the other thing you have to just realize as you're trying to bring in that tissue from a uh, lateral medial fashion you're pinching the nose so you have to take out you know large burrow triangles around the nose not to pinch the nose in to close that down and again the concept there remains a uh, near total defect you can go and do the carapansic, but you're going to have significant microstomia. So you're gonna to have to go back in there after that patient gets through that initial stage and probably put an abbe flap back in or end initially. So again, multiple stages for that. So it's similar to the lower lip, but the stakes are higher because of the filtral column and just the overall laxity you can get out of it.
0: And you've kind of touched a little bit on this already, but given some of the prominent upper lip features like like philtral column or the cupid's bow, are there any specialized like tips or reconstructive efforts we can do to, re- to reconstruct those landmarks or?
1: I think they, I think it's important, at least for the upper lip, when you're dealing with the philtrum, that to treat that as a unique subunit. And so I would really think that if you're going to put a flap in, it should do the whole subunit up to the nasal vestibule. Okay. And so that's probably the biggest tip I have. The other tip I'd have is for commissures. If you don't have much commissure left and you're thinking that you want to, oh, gee whiz, I really would like to do a big Abbey flap. Well, then just sacrifice that little bit of the commissure and just commit to doing that. What I've seen in the past is that commissure can get really small, almost hard to find. And so it's best just to remove that as an element if you would get a better reconstructive outcome by just committing to a larger Abbe flap or an S lander. But I would treat the filtrum as a separate subunit. As far as designing it, we kind of talked about the abbey. Uh, it's harder to do an Abbe flap um, taking from the upper lip to the lower lip because of the things I just mentioned. Um, if you were to take the filtrum from the upper lip to transfer it to the lower lip, you're gonna have a hard time reconstituting the filtering from this lateral lobe elements. So just be mindful of that. So the abbe, the carapansic works well for the upper lip in terms of bringing things in, but you're gonna probably wanna reconstitute that with an abbe flap once that's settled in.
0: And what complications are you looking out for in these patients?
1: Microstomy is probably your biggest one for the larger defects. Microstomy is just going to happen. And there are various ways to address that. Commissure plasties can address that. Abbe flaps can address that. So again, maybe that's a common theme here: is that the Abbe is your go-to fix it once you've established oral competency. That the goal is to get oral competency and then come back. But microstomia you're going to fight against blunting of the commissure, an absolute known for the Slander flap, and leading towards a commissure plasty. Not the end of the world. Uh, wound dehiscence, infection—that's that's the same for most all flaps. Um, and then oral competency—we uh, haven't talked too much about using radial forearms and whatnot. But if you take out a lot of the lip and you're not able to get, you know, functional competency reestablished, the patient's going to struggle, and it's hard to get back that dynamic function. So again, anything that you can do from a dynamic sense to reconstitute the sphincter, you should do that.
0: And how frequently do you follow these patients up post-operatively and for how long post-op?
1: Oh, I think, you know, I just had a patient that came via phone call that was still two years out and still having oral competency issues. Uh, And so you have to follow them for, I think, at least six to 12 months for these larger defects. And management during that time can include massage, steroid injections, plasties but most importantly is that you're following them. Uh, I would not rush to do a bunch of um, early stages uh, in that sense. Scarring is a big issue. Uh, and so steroid injections, I think, can help soften the scar, but also oral rehab. It's really important that they start mobilizing the lip as early as possible. So it's similar to like a joint if they don't use it and they don't really massage out that scar, especially for microsomia, they will not have good interdental opening.
0: Well, that's all the questions I had for you today, Dr. Robichek. Was there anything else you wanted to review or reiterate?
1: No, I appreciate that, Dr. Malka. I think uh, lip reconstruction is uh, it's, it's one of the most compelling, but also most complicated things that we do. And just think, again, you're looking at both a dynamic as well as aesthetic portion of the face. And similar to the nose, you have to be mindful of what you do for that. So thank you very much and
0: good luck. Thanks so much for teaching us today. To briefly summarize, patients presenting with upper and lower lip defects typically present with either a traumatic defect requiring delayed reconstruction or malignancy requiring reconstruction after resection though benign neoplasms and congenital deformities may also necessitate lip recon. Patients should be evaluated for comorbidities that may affect healing or propensity for infection, such as tobacco use, immunosuppression, or diabetes, and photodocumentation throughout the stages of lip reconstruction is critical. Lower lip reconstruction is typically easier due to the lack of a filtral column, but both uh, upper and lower lips use similar reconstructive principles with smaller defects utilizing primary closure or small local flaps and larger defects requiring either pedicles, flaps, or even free flaps for total lip loss. While ensuring oral competence is of primary importance, uh, typically accomplished with a carapanzic flap, Multiple flaps or other procedures like plasty may be performed over months to years to widen the oral commissure and optimize aesthetic outcome. And as always, we'll end with a few review questions. I'll ask the question, pause for a moment to give you a chance to think of the answer or pause the podcast, and then give the answer. So first off, describe the subunits of the upper and lower lip. This can be a tricky question depending on if you're breaking the lip down based on sidedness. So many review books will say there are two subunits to the upper lip, the lateral subunits and the filtral subunit, and one unit to the lower lip, i.e. the whole lip. Uh, But if you're using laterality, many surgeons will consider three subunits to the upper lip, right, filtral, and left, and two in the lower lip, left and right. Second up, what differentiates an abbe flap and an S-lender flap? An abbe flap uh, does not involve the oral commissure, whereas an S-lender flap is specifically designed to reconstruct the oral commissure. Remember that both are full-thickness pedicled flaps from the opposite lip and often require a second stage for reconstruction. As a side note, names are sometimes misleading or used differently depending on uh, the surgeon and the flap. So, for instance, the Bernard Burrow flap uh, has a Webster modification for upper lip reconstruction and is sometimes uh, referred to as the Bernard Webster flap. And the Gillies fan flap is sometimes differentiated entirely from a carapanzic flap by being specifically for upper lip recon, with a carapanzic flap designated uh, for lower lips only. And lastly, what size cutoffs do we typically use for lower lip reconstruction options? For defects less than a quarter of the lip, uh, and up to really a third of the lip, primary closure can be considered. Defects uh, of less than one-half of the lip can be closed using small local advancement flaps or pedicled interposition flaps like an Ave or an Slender flap. Greater than half of the lip uh, missing typically requires a carapanzic flap to reinstate oral competence and provide sensation. And greater than two-third defect typically requires a large advancement rotation flap like a carapanzic or gillies flap or may require free flap reconstruction. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time.